magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you G'day everybody and welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today I've got a very special guest on the podcast. He's a, he's a very good friend of mine, one of my horsey heroes and he's uh, yeah he's a, an amazing guy who's just a little bit of everything and the, the guest I'm going to have on here today is Dan Steers and he is one half of Double Dan Horsemanship and you know there's not much this guy can't do. He does amazing um liberty acts entertainment acts he does he's an amazing trainer he's an amazing clinician and he's an amazing competitor so he you know he really can do an amazing family man too but he can really do all the things and he's one of those guys that i just i just think he's got his act together you know he's he's someone i really respect and admire and uh you know he we could have a like 15 two-hour conversation with dan and still not get all the stories out of him so i I probably really can't get all of Dan's journey on here, so uh, we'll uh, we'll just get him on and see what we can uh, get started with him. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the man, the horseman, the father, the entertainer, the class clown. I think that's all I could describe him as. Uh, Dan Steers, how you going, mate? I'm going bloody well, mate. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I um, this is the the journey on podcast, and you know when I talk to people, I talk about their their journeys in life, and we're not going to do that with you, Dan, because a uh, few listeners out there, Dan and his business partner Dan James have a podcast of their own, and they're going through their journey year by year, and I think they're like twelve podcasts in, and they're up to about two thousand and ten. So we don't have like fifty six hours to go through the whole thing. Is that is it? Are you still up to two thousand ten, or are you getting a bit further along? Yeah, obviously, I haven't been listening because we're up to I think we have fourteen episodes. And we've done 2012. So we, the last episode was actually an interview with my first mentor, Pete Weber. So that just came out this week. And then the one before was the end of 2012. So the next episode should be 2013. So we're getting there. So what are you going to do once you get to get up to present date? What else? Are you just going to, uh, you guys are so funny. You're probably just going to relay what happened in the last week because I've, Listen to those podcasts. I just don't know how you you two are not dead yet. Some of the crazy things you've done. Well, we're giving you the PG version too because um, Pierre is a bit of a, a sensor for what I can and can't say. A lot of times she doesn't know what I'm going to say and then she listens to it and then um, I get the feedback after the fact. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of it's <laughs> the, the scaled down version. But um, once we once we roll through the um, timeline, we're calling it, we hope to be able to do some interviews like you're doing right now. And, and obviously, we want to get yourself on our podcast and um, and, and some other horsemen and, and women on there. And then also just do a bit of Q&A and, and then some philosophy stuff as well on our end. So it's not just all fun and games. We want to yeah, diversify, so to speak. That's awesome. So, you know, I was just going to – I was trying to think – do you remember where we met? 
when we met? Well, for me, I feel like we met at uh, 2010 at, at the World Equestrian Games, but we may have met previously, but I feel like that was the, f- the first time I met you. Yeah, I remember meeting James at Equitana in 2008. Were you there? I was there, but I don't. We weren't double Dan then, and oh, okay, um, okay, okay. And that's why I might have met you there, but not, not really. And then I know that Dan also did an event, I reckon, in two thousand and nine down in um, Tasmania that you were at as well. <laughs> yes, I was. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I didn't that. go. Yeah, I didn't go there. Um, and then two thousand and ten, the, the the tattoo sort of. Yeah, the World of Question Games. Yeah, you know. I don't expect all the listeners to go and listen to all 236 episodes of your podcast, but I, what I didn't know about that, so, you know, I met you at the World of Question Games. You guys were over there. It's, this is in uh, 2010 in Lexington, Kentucky, and you guys are over there, and you're doing a an act in the opening ceremonies of the World of Question Games. And there's, I think there's about 30,000 people there that night, wasn't there? Yeah, there was 30,000, yeah. And what? Uh, what I didn't know and what was so amazing is you guys saved money, self-funded, transported yourselves over there months and months ahead of time, got a team of horses and prepared them all just with the um, the purpose of being able to 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 entertain at the at the opening ceremony of the world of question games and uh, how long, how long did you guys spend over there on your own dime? before the World of Question Games? Well, it was just short of three months um, for for that stint, but but James had already been over earlier and got a bit of a head start and started the horses um, well, probably six months prior to us going where he put about, oh, it was only like a week or two on them and just got them started to make sure that they were going to suit and, and, and sort of tee everything up. But it was like in hindsight, it was pretty loose, the plans, you know, you, you sort of think you've got everything covered. But in hindsight, we, we certainly didn't. We didn't know what sort of budget. Um, we're hoping that if we, we secured it, because we didn't even know that part. Like it was a lot of it was on a bit of a whim at the start where it was potentially we're going to do the World Equestrian Games. But once it finally got confirmed, um, you know, we, we seeked a bit of sponsorship and we couldn't, we couldn't secure anything significant, so we sort of fundraised and yeah, did what we could, and and then we lived on a shoestring budget when we got over there. Yeah, you know, the, listening to your guys' podcast, it's it's amazing. I think you know different people's minds work different ways or whatever. And for me, I have been just very lucky in life to where I I, I go, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going along and I go, oh, look, bright, shiny object. And I head towards things that pop up in front of me. I've never been much of a planner. And so I think you tend to look at other people and admire things about them that you don't have. And you guys just have a, um, listen to your podcast. I mean, you know, I know you guys personally stuff. And I know where you've ended up, but I just didn't know the story of getting there. And you guys just have this drive to like, okay, that's the goal in the future. And, and, and you really, you really know how to like work towards it and stuff like that. Whereas I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm a bit of a wanderer and all the cool things that have happened to me, I think I've just been lucky they've popped up in front of me, but I've never really, oh, planned like you guys. It was just, it was so cool listening to the podcast and thinking, wow, these guys just have a whole, I think what you, the two of you have is a maybe a whole lot of self belief or something or other. So, what would out of the two of you, what do you think your strengths are? 
as far as bringing stuff to like like getting things done like that? Well, I was actually about, yeah, I was about to give James a lot of the credit for the probably for the foresight. Like he's certainly um, the one that's probably got that sort of vision where um, he's very optimistic and and has. I mean, I think we both equally have you know, drive, um, but but sometimes I'm the one that sort of puts the brakes on some of the, the ideas and, and sort of, you know, look at it from the different perspective of the organisational side of things. Like, um, you know, James pretty well is not super organised. He has to have organised people around him. Um, but I think we're sort of yin and yang in that respect because um, some sometimes I probably, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't step out there and, and make some of the calls that we did because I would be too pessimistic about it. Um, he's optimistic, and so for the for the two of us, I think we balance each other out. Because sometimes when he has some of his plans, they're not really well thought out, and and they're not going to work at all. And then other times they just need a bit of adjusting. And and um, and and I always, you know, believe and and I, and I believe James thinks this as well, is that we we do balance each other out in that respective. Yeah, I, I, and I think, you know, I remember years and years and years ago, many years ago, probably 25 years ago, listening to a, uh, they were cassette tapes actually, and they were a fellow named Napoleon Hill, and he had written a book called, uh, I think it was called Think and Grow Rich or something, but it wasn't that book, it was a, a different different book, but he was talking about how to be successful or something really, but he talked about OPB and OPM, and OPB was other people's brains, and OPM was other people's money, and you know, so it's just about. I, I think what he was getting at is you cannot be everything in your little organization, whatever it is. You can't fill all the roles. You have to have people that have different skills, and you bring them all to the table. And I really think that's that's like with you and Dan. You know, like when you hit the nail on the head, then he's like the visionary, and you are like the you know you're the one that that gets stuff done. And I think Rob and I are a little bit like that too. Not that I'm the visionary like Dan James is, but I will go, I think I need to video something about this and I'll do it. And then, you know, Robin and Tyler, they're the ones that get stuff done with it. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm the, I'm kind of the ideas man in our house, but I'm just not as a, I don't know, brave thinker as, as, um, as old DJ. So tell us, well, I mean, we're not going to go through The only thing just to go over that part was that for us too, I think um, listening back to our own podcast, to be honest, is it, we did it at a really good time of our life where, you know, we had a little bit behind ourselves as far as experience, you know, certainly, you know, we're only in our, our early mid twenties when we got that thing rolling, but we still didn't have huge amount of commitments and we're very ambitious and very confident. And I, I certainly think that helped us be able to sort of do those sort of adventurous things where if we're probably sitting back now with, you know, um, family and property and established businesses, to, to walk away from that and start something um, from scratch and say that we're going to go and self-fund all this stuff and, you know, try to do the big shows, you know, around the world and and uh, start a horsemanship company, I reckon, I don't know if I'd be brave enough to do it now. Right, yeah, I think everything happens at the right, at the right time. So I want to talk to you, Dean, a little bit about, so there's there's a lot of facets to what you do. There's the you know, there's the horsemanship part of it, um, the, you know, the education part of it. You There's a competition part of it. But then there's this entertainment part. And that's, I imagine, to the the wider audience, 
that's where you're probably more well known in the in maybe the horsemanship world you're also really well known for your your horsemanship and your in your clinics and things like that but for the person who might you know because i have people in europe stuff listen to this so the people who haven't ever really seen much you guys let's talk about some of the big shows you've done like so you've done the opening ceremony of the world of question games and you've been on australia's got talent so that was uh what year was that uh, 2010. Yeah, we went on Australia's Got Talent, and that was a big launching pad for us. And and even um, not just in Australia, but like you said, around the world, like it's been viewed, you know, millions of times around the world, and been um, showcased on on the other sort of franchise talent shows as well. So that that's been a big one. Other than that, I guess, you know, with all the expos that we've done, whether it's be Equitana or Equine Affair or Main Event or, you know, all those ones, you, you know, you've been to as well over in the States, um, you know, here in Australia, it's it's a lot more um, about agricultural shows and, and um, you know, championship uh, equestrian disciplines, you know, whether it be the dressage championships or the cutting championships, we've sort of done them all here in Australia. I don't think there's... I think maybe the we've even done the eventing. I don't think we've done jumping. Um, that's probably the only you know major championships we have. And I've even done the Arabian. Would you believe that? No, I don't believe that. Where was that at? Uh, that was at Syak there in Sydney. So where they had the Sydney Olympics for the listeners around the world. We did that, and um, I actually got to do a show just um, before uh, Doctor Harry came out. Um, so you you would know Doctor Harry, don't you? Warren? Yep. So he, yeah. So he came out as well, and and um and did a show at this at this Arabian Nationals, and I got pretty good feedback from him, which I'm which I'm proud of. That's pretty cool. So the the uh, Australia's Got Talent. How many times has that been viewed on YouTube? You know, um, I I only look it up just when I'm feeling a bit blue. You know, when I need a bit of a pick me up. Uh, it's <laughs> about fifteen million on just one of the clips. It's had a few yeah. clips, but one of them's got fifteen million. That's funny because I'm, you know, I'm kind of proud. I'm, I'm coming up on 20 million views on my YouTube channel, and you've got 15 million views on one little thing on YouTube. So that's, yeah, that's pretty amazing. So what, what's, what would you say the biggest crowd you've ever uh, performed in front of? We've done 30,000 a few times. We talked about the World Equestrian Games, but I also did the Edinburgh Military Tattoo over here, and that featured on the podcast for a couple of reasons. But um, I did that was four nights in front of 30,000. I'm not sure when we do um, like Sydney Royal, I'm not sure what they get in there, whether they get more than 30,000 there. Um, but I sort of feel like, yeah, 30,000 is sort of the number of, of um, spectators, you know, that are actually at the event rather than the ones that are tuning in online. Because uh, when they did the World Equestrian Games, I mean, that got um, broadcasted, you know, to millions of people yeah. around the world. So we, we got pretty good. Um, sort of, yeah, range on that as well. So when you, like, I've been in front of 30,000 people because I did the walk the opening ceremonies at the World of Question Games, but they weren't cheering for me. When you do a show in front of that many people and they're into what you do, and I've never seen you guys perform in front of anybody, horse people or any others, that, that didn't just go, wow, that's amazing. What do you... How do you, what's that energy do to you? Like that feedback, that, and it's, this is not like the uh, accolades, like people going, wow, you're cool, but just the, 
you know, people, that appreciative energy, how does that feel um, after being in front of that many people? The That part's, I guess, the, 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 the thrill part of it, the adrenaline part. Um, it's really lonely out there if you don't have the crowd support. So it doesn't really matter whether, you know, you're doing a demo in front of, you know, 200 people or, you know, 20,000. It's just the interaction. You, you want them like – Dan and I often feel like we get lost when we when we're doing the agricultural shows and we're stuck out in a big arena like an oval and you've got you know you've got that number it could even be more than 30,000 at some of those and they're staggered around that huge arena and they put you in the middle we feel really disconnected and and that that's almost uncomfortable like I actually probably would get now I, I don't even want to do those shows anymore, particularly without the other Dan, because now we do a lot of shows separately. Yeah, if I, I certainly wouldn't probably do it by myself anymore because it does feel so lonely out there. Um, you just reminded me of a story that I reckon I can share with you because I haven't shared it on on even our Facebook, but um, you just reminded me about talking about crowds that really get into it. I was at um, Beef Week in Rockhampton, and this was 2010 as well. We had a really big year, 2010. No, no, it wasn't 2010, sorry, it was 2012. We had a big year, 2012. So for, let me just interrupt you for a second. So for you listeners around the world, Rockhampton is in Queensland, so the northern part of Australia, and it's, and it's all cattle country. And so they have a big thing up there that's called Beef Week, if you want to know what Beef Week is. And it's all, you know, it's all uh, cattle, agricultural kind of related thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's only every three years too. It's a weird okay. number. Um, it's every three years. And it was, it's quite a big gig. Dan and I tried to get it the first year that we came over, which was 2009, and we didn't get it. Um, Guy McLean actually got the show. And then um, three years later, then I got the gig because James was in the States. And I went there and we were part of a night show. And I, and I did several different acts in this night show. And it was a bit of an oval sort of deal as well. And they had the crowd. They would have had a few thousand. It wasn't you know, massive. But there was a few thousand people just scattered around this oval. And um, they might have been about four or five deep, you know, around this oval. And and one of the acts that I did was in the dark with that fire whip that you've seen me use on Double Image. Yep. And, I, and I'm cantering around. And, and, you know, when I first cracked that fire whip the first couple of times, you, you get these, um, you know, big gas balls. And yep. I'd already done that and, and the fuel had sort of gone out of it, you know, but it's still a light. It doesn't do those big explosions. And so you get a big applause usually when that happens and then, I'm going down the fence, waving this whip, you know, at a brisk canner. It's not a gallop, but, you know, a fast canner. The crowd's just sort of clapping and cheering as I go past. And I'm in the dark. They're not making, like, you know, heaps of noise, but I know they're there. And then Double Image stumbles. And when he stumbles, we fell in a bit of a hole because he's, he's in the dark. I thought he was going to go down. Like, we went right down to his knees. And I stopped swinging my whip. And the momentum of the whip kept going, of course, and it wrapped around my body, around my torso, and I had a clean white shirt on. And then he didn't quite go all the way to the ground like I thought he was going to go. He, he got himself back up and he kept cantering. And as he did that, I realized this whip was wrapped around my body. And so I, you know, calmly unwrapped myself in the, mo- in the moment and then started swinging the whip again. And the crowd at that point, like – as I passed that section of the crowd and I kept going, the crowd was getting louder and louder and they were cheering harder and harder. And I started getting paranoid that, I, that I've caught on fire because I thought, why is this crowd 
changed. And and it was like that movie, Talladega Nights. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Ricky Bobby, <laughs> Invisible Fire. I thought I was on fire. And so all of a sudden my back felt hot and I'm trying to ride looking behind myself and I'm swinging this whip going, is my back on fire? Like, did I catch on fire then? And is that why the crowd's cheering better than they were, you know, in the first half? And uh, and I'm like looking behind myself and, you know, I'm swinging this whip and, and I, I'm, I realize I'm not getting any hotter, so therefore I don't think I'm on fire. But I get back to, you know, behind the scenes and I'm talking to our crew and I'm like, check my back. Is there singe marks on my back of my shirt? There was there was a bit of sort of black mark, but but I was I certainly wasn't on fire. And uh, and so when you when you just said that about the crowd, that's that was a flashback that I got that a crowd got into it. But uh, luckily for the right reasons, but I thought it might have been for the wrong reasons. That reminds me of the uh, story you were you told about. I think it was one of those. Uh, might have been for the uh, Edinburgh military tattoo. But you guys, you had to wear some sort of explosive device while Roman riding on a couple of horses or something or other. Sydney Royal, Sydney Royal, yeah, Sydney Royal show. And so, if anybody in America is listening, the Sydney Royal show is like the state fair. Yeah, tell us about that, Dan. What did you What did you have to do for that? What was it? A smoke device or something? Was it a spark? No, it was a sparkling device, wasn't it? Like a. It was. It was technically a fireworks. Yeah. It was a, they call them, oh, what do they call them? It's um, a gerb. They call them a gerb if anybody's, a, I guess, a pyrotechnician listening. Um, but it, essentially it's like a massive sparkler that shoots, um, you know, sparks sort of oh, 20, 30 feet in the air. And it's big enough, you know, like they use them at the base of fireworks to to create that sort of spark sensation and then they set the fireworks off usually in a big fireworks show. And uh, we were, we were doing this um, uh, big show for, for Sydney Royal and Sydney's, it's the biggest, you know, you talk about a state fair. It's if you can imagine whatever the biggest state fair in America is, this is the equivalent in Australia. So we were pretty excited to be there and, and they had this uh, nighttime show that we were involved in and, and our part was Roman riding amongst a bunch of other stuff. And so Dan was on two horses and I was on two horses and we go out there. And, and anyway, when we were rehearsing this, the um, producer or the the director of the show, um, we were having these, you know, post-show production meetings and uh, and he was saying, look, you know, boys, well, I love the Roman writing. You know, it's sensational. It looks fantastic. But he said, you get lost amongst all the other stuff. He said, I want to bring some attention to it. He said, how would you feel about putting some fireworks on, on your back? And uh, I was just like, nope, I don't feel good about it at all. And, uh, and James is like, oh, yeah, yeah, tell me more. He's like, I'm interested. And, uh, and so they said, um, you know, they talked to the pyrotechnician and, and these gerbs, they could set them up essentially on a vest and, and you'd ha- you have to self-detonate them. You know, it's the closest thing you'll ever do to being a suicide bomber, if I can say that. Yeah, politically correctly, and uh, and you had like a, a a vest that had these things. It was on a stick. It wasn't really that well designed. It was all homemade stuff. It was like um those uh, motocross vests, and then they just had like zippy tied essentially like a, a stick, and then they you know tape these fireworks onto this stick. And Dan Dan's idea was look if we get the horses cantering pretty fast, the two horses, the by the time you hit that switch and you detonate them. They can't really speed up any more than they're already going, and so they'll just keep going forward. And he did that. We're in the warm-up. It was during the day, 
and and we're in at Sydney and um he gets in the arena, gets going a little bit, hits him. His horses take the mine, the you know the most small, minute, you know, spook, and they speed up just slightly. And it, I think they're fifteen seconds, so fifteen seconds, and then it finishes. And I've got mine on, and he's telling me he's like, "Do it," and I'm like, "I'm not doing it." He's like, "Do it," and he's like telling me to do it. I'm like, "I'm not doing it." I'm like, "My horses." They weren't as brave as his. They greener than his. I'm, I wasn't. I'm. I wasn't, and I'm still not as good as him at Roman riding. Anyway, eventually he talks me into it enough to try it. He just said, "You have to try it." And I'm only trotting. I wouldn't let these things canter up. And uh, they're just trotting. I'm holding the reins bloody tight too. And you have to like lift this plastic cover off this switch, and you and you flick the switch up, but then you had to press a secondary button to detonate it. And uh, and I did that, and these two horses took off, and they separated slightly, and I fell down in between them, and I'm holding the reins, one horse in each hand, and I'm dra- I'm getting dragged by my feet doing big elevens. I've got 15 seconds of fireworks going off in between these horses. I'm yelling out wool the whole time. <laughs> Dan James is pissing himself laughing, and there's a bunch of other people watching. And then not only once I stopped those horses – was I mad? But I cussed him out like you wouldn't believe. I give it to him in front of everybody, and uh, essentially, I I got out of the Roman riding part of that show because they still wanted it, and Dan was happy to do it. So I did it on double image when I was riding him um, in a saddle, and I had the fire whip as well. So I did those two, but he did it on the Roman riding horses. And after the first night of the actual show, they would have another post production meeting after the show every night. The producer fellow again says, look, loved it, fantastic. But he said, you don't get far enough out there and that's and that sparkler finishes. He's, he turns to the pyrotechnic fella and he says to him, he says, mate, he said, can we get one that lasts a little longer? And the pyrotechnic fella says, oh, well, we can do a 30-second gerb. But he says, if that detonates, it will blow his head off. It will kill him. And I turned to the pyro guy and I said, what does 15 seconds do if that detonates? He says, oh, well, he'll have a nasty burn, have to go to hospital, but he won't die. I'm like, well, where was that in the disclaimer? Like, they never mentioned that previous until it got to the 30-second one. So you know what they ended up doing? They strapped two 15-second gerbs on him so that he could detonate one, and then when that one finished, he could detonate the second one. That's the logic. So this was so James, James, James is doing this now. Yeah, so James is he's out there on his own. I'm 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 on okay. the I'm doing something different. Okay, so you ended up doing one of them on um, double image. Yeah, I, he was fine. Mm. Okay, well let's 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 talk about double image. I because we were talking before about where did we first meet, and it was at the World of Question Games in 2010. But where we kind of got to know each other was both Dan and I for the last five years, I believe, have presented at a horse expo in New Zealand. Uh, called Equidays. And, you know, training horses, the, the, for me, the big, the big thing is, can your horse be relaxed, but can your horse do something that brings them up, you know, emotionally and physically, and then can they come back down again? And so if you think about, you know, someone's little plotty old trail riding horse and you just ride around and can't get it to go anywhere, that's, that's the bottom end of the scale. And then you think about a racehorse at the top end of the scale, 
but they really don't have the back and forth between the two of them. And, and my background is in the reining, and every reining maneuver has a mental up and a physical up and a mental down and a physical down. Like your circles, you do three circles in each direction, and two of them are large and fast, and one is small and slow. And if you – you can have the fastest circling horse in the world, but if you can't slow down – you don't get paid for your circle. You don't get any credit for your circles because it's all about the up and the down. You know, when you do the sliding stop, you build, you come around the corner and you go first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear, stop, roll back, first gear. And so it's all about controlling that. Same with the spins. When you walk to the middle of the arena for a spin, let's say you have to do four spins to the left, you four spins left, and then you have to hesitate. And that hesitate is part of the judged judge part of the maneuver so they're making it's really about can your horse be emotionally balanced that way and, and it's and it's it's difficult to do in most horses and when I first met Dan in New Zealand he had um, his horse double image he's a stallion that he has over there and and I think it was probably the first time I'd really seen your your act and and the the thing that amazed me about double image is you know so one of the things he'll do is running and uh, at liberty and sit on a beanbag you've got a big horse beanbag and double image will sit on that beanbag and um he will sit on that beanbag as long as dan wants him on the beanbag and then dan can hop on and run him down the other end of the arena and stop do a sliding stop four spins rear up and hold this really cool rear up and then run down the other end and stop and spin and then do some circles and change leads and go fast and then go and sit on the beanbag and go boom and it's just like he's got the most amazing on and off switch you know when i when i first saw him over there at equidays dan i was like you know i i didn't know you that well but when i saw that horse i'm like this guy is a horseman because in order to get a horse to do that is very very hard you can do the sit on the beanbag all day long and you can do the run and stop a bit but to do the run stop rare run stop rare sit on the beanbag go to sleep stay there that's that's a a skill that very few horses um possess really well i appreciate it i'd love to take credit for it but it's um it's a lot of the horse he's 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 an incredible horse he's um so trainable and adaptable like i think i got him as a yearling when i was like 20 or 21 and so um you know as much as i would have liked to thought that i i had a clue at that point I clearly didn't, and um, and so I started him, and he was ju- he's just been easy the whole time, and um, and then as I've changed and developed and you know done things, I've changed things on him, and uh, he he just like if you just wanted to do a backflip and just do a complete different discipline, and just tomorrow just went down there and just started training him, you know, completely different than how we've done it in the past. He just goes, okay, radio, all right, this is what we're doing now. He doesn't hold on to that preconceived idea stuff. And I remember letting um, Mark Buttsworth, so, um, you know, you obviously know who he is, but for the listeners, I mean, in the camp draft world and in the cutting world here in Australia, he's he's a huge name and he's a really good Australian horseman. And uh, he took him to Cloncurry, but he only had oh, about two weeks prep with him. And one thing I told Buttsy, as I said, mate, whatever you get out of this horse – you know, in your training when you're at home, when you show him, he will give you that. Like you don't, you know, because you know what, I, and I'm assuming this happens to you, you and other people as well that show horses. Some horses you just got to back them off a little bit like they just, 
when you get to the show pen, you're just like, oh, I've just got to take a little bit off them. They just can't handle that extra pressure of being at the show and, and you know, the, the pressure of you riding them to that high level. So you sort of think, oh, well, they, they, they're 10% less than what their best is at home. And, uh, and double image isn't, he's always, whatever you get at home, you'll get out in the show pen. And on the first day of Cloncurry, Butsy won the, the, the raining section, the dry section. And, uh, when he rang me up, he, he, I said, how did he go? He said, oh, yeah, he was good. He said, but I understand what you mean. He said, when I was warming him up, um, you know, he just, he didn't, he didn't feel anything special. But he said, when I rode him in that ring, he said he felt special. And he said, he just, he just felt like you could push him for everything that you wanted. And he was only four, he would have been four. Yeah, you have to be four for that. So he was only four years old for that event. And, uh, and that's what it's, he, he's been like his whole life. When I go and do those shows, you can, you can just push him. And, um, and if anything, he sort of notices those bigger occasions and he, and he rises to them as much as he's safe that you can do all the other stuff with him. Like you said, the slow stuff with him. You can also do the, the hard and fast stuff. And I've got horses here at home that can, can do every, every bit that he can do. And some, some of the stuff they can do better than he can. But I, I can't get that consistency out of them. I can't get that showmanship out of them. Like if I push them as hard as I can push him, um, I wouldn't be able to do it a second time. If that makes sense, right? That they the next time you go in there, they'd be they'd be too wound up or whatever. Yeah, they'd be anticipating it for sure. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's all about you know anticipation. They've got to anticipate things to do them well. But if they anticipate them too much, and so he he just he just seems like he stays right there in the middle. And well, you know you that. Know, Brand, oh, sorry, cut you off. You know that Brandon Brandt? That, yep, that yep, Brandon, yep, yep. So when he came over here, he worded it really well. Like he said, you know, it's all about disciplined anticipation. And uh, and I think that's a perfect word to sum it up. Like, you know, when you talk about a reigning horse, I always do a bit of a gag about it when I'm talking about like to try to explain to, you know, like our clinic participants, like I think there's some of the best horsemanship in any equine discipline is actually in the reining. And and there's a few different reasons I, I believe that. But um, but one of them is like, you know, you walk in there and, you, and you're showing the judge all the time that this horse is not anticipating anything. He, you, you walk to the middle of the pen and it's almost painful to watch, to be honest, that you've got this slack in the rain and you're, you're sitting there and you're showing the judge, you're throwing more rain at him, you're you know, bumping him with your legs. He's just sitting there in frame. He won't move. And you're saying, look at this judge. He's not thinking about anything. He's not anticipating. Have a look at him. And you keep saying it over and over again. It's like, we get it. We get it. Just do the pattern for crying out loud, you know. And then you say four circle, you know, four spins, I should say, to the left. And you open up that leg and then this, you know, whatever horse just starts spinning. Nine-oh. And then they shut that horse down. And as soon as they shut that horse down, they're back to showing the judge, look, he's not thinking about anything. Because it could be from there, what it could be a lead departure to the left. It could be a lead departure to the right. It could be another set of spins to the opposite direction. I mean, there's, there's different options, right? He can't, he can't anticipate. And, and then you sit there and say, look, he's not anticipating. He's not anticipating. And then you go bang, whatever that next, um, aid is, he nails. And, and if a horse isn't anticipating at all, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, Warwick, but if, if the horse isn't anticipating at all and you would ask him to start full spins to the left, you'd, you'd cue him, you'd say, you'd open up your leg or whatever your cue is, your subtle cue, 
And the horse would go, hang, what? Hang on, what? what? What did you say? And then you'd say, it's four, four spins to the left, mate, four spins to the left. So you'd drag the rein across his neck. He said, what was that? What did you say again? And then you'd probably say it the third time and he'd go, oh, rightio, four spins to the left. And then he would start up. And that's really, truly a horse that's not anticipating. You know, he's not going to just, it's not going to be right there. And so when Brandon said that, you know, there's two words like disciplined anticipation, I was like, man, that is a really good way to sum it up because when a reigning horse is in the middle, he is anticipating, but he is waiting for what that next command is, what that next state is. He is just as willing to go to the left as he is to go to the right whether it's a spin, whether it's a lead departure. And and that's where I think it's it's really cool. And, of course, within that, your horse is going to make mistakes. Sometimes he's going to – and this is, you know, where I've been, you know, educated in the reigning deal. You know, he is going to anticipate the wrong answer, but at least he's thinking and and you, you certainly can't punish it for it. So when we talk a little bit – I know we're off topic, but when you talk about that anticipation, that's something that, um, you know – a lot of horsemen say it can be your best friend or your worst enemy, but it's something that really you, you sort of nearly using every time you ride your horse. Would you agree? Oh yeah, and you know, if you've got a horse who tends to be dull, he's you know you, you never really it's hard to get him in the middle because they're not anticipating using that energy. And if you've got a horse that tends to be high energy, they're not anticipating the dull and and like double image. He just you know, like I said that first time I saw him, he was just. Um, Right there in the middle. Actually, I might have seen him at Equ- Equitana. I mean, yeah, Equitana in Australia. And, and so we better tell, talk about this. So um, Equitana in Australia, and I can't remember what year it was. But so for you guys listening, Equitana is, a, is the biggest horse expo in Australia. It's held in um, Melbourne, which is down the bottom of Australia. And they have a um, like a big, what you'd call like a coliseum thing, a big indoor venue plus a lot of outdoor things too. I mean, sorry, they, sorry, they have a big indoor thing and then they have a big trade show and in each of the big buildings the trade shows in, they have a little arena and so some demos occur in there but the main stuff happens in this big arena and I've, I've so Dan and Dan are, um, you know, they do a lot of the entertainment stuff there and so they've invited me to be in oh. some of the entertainment stuff with them and that's the only entertaining I've ever done is when someone else has planned it like you guys and I, I did it, oh, Dan wasn't involved in it, but in 2008 at Equitana, I, got, I was involved in a thing called the All Star Clinic on, I think it was the Sunday night. I don't think they do Sunday nights anymore, but maybe they do. But it's called the All Star Clinic. And so there's an Olympic eventer, um, which is Clayton Fredericks. I think there was an Olympic uh, dressage. Oh, it wasn't Olympic dressage, right? It was a World of Question Games dressage, right? It was Brett Parbury. There's them two, then they had a, Olympic show jumper who was Chris Chug, and then they had a, a, a world class polo player from England named Sam Bowles, I think his name was. Then they had right. a camp drafter, Heidi the Raining, and then Guy McLean was in it. And uh, so we got to go in, and you, you get like seven or eight minutes to do your your discipline, you know, show what your discipline does. And then at, at, um, at uh, intermission, you go outside and you get to swap with someone else and you come back in and you basically take a lesson on a horse you've never ridden in a discipline you don't do. And I got to swap with Brett Parbury and rode the dressage horse. And that the feeling I got off that dressage horse actually influenced everything I did with the reining horses from then on out because he just had a level of engagement I had not really felt before. What You know what I felt with him was in the reining, 
when you run a horse to a stop and you get them really running uphill and really reaching for ground and they kind of come up underneath you and there's a spot in that rundown that's perfect whereas if I pull the trigger right now this stop will be perfect that horse felt like that at the walk at the trot at the canter he just felt like he could just you could pull the trigger right there so that was pretty cool and fast forward a few years and this might be 2012 maybe maybe 14 I can't remember um they're gonna do uh, a night show and I've you guys have asked me to be in the night show, so I'm doing the raining. And uh, so it's Thursday. Is Equitana three days or four days? Four. Four days. So it's Wednesday afternoon, and we've all got to meet in the big Coliseum thing, and we're going to go over this night show, and they've got the other people who are going to be in it. And Charlotte Dujardin, the, the you know Olympic gold medalist in the uh, dressage, she's there. So she's in it, and then they have a – the, uh, a, a German guy who was an Olympic gold medalist in the show jumping uh, or, or eventing. So he's a venter and his name was Dirk Schrade. He's in it and I have a few other people, but we're in the arena and there's some jumps set up in that arena. And there's one of them's a brush fence. It's about a meter something high and only not very wide. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, I would love a picture of me jumping <laughs> a horse over that in front of a crowd. So then we're, t- you know, Dan, James is kind of going, okay, so what we're all going to do, we're going to do this and this and this, and then we'll swap horses. So, Warwick, why don't you and Charlotte swap? And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to ride the dressage horse because I've got pictures of me riding a dressage horse in front of that Equitana crowd, you know. Um, I'm like, I want to ride the jumping horse. And they're like, no, no, you ride the dressage horse. And I went back and forth and went back and forth. And finally it was like I get to ride the uh, – I get, I'm going to get to ride the jumping horse. And I think the jumping horse was a bay mare or something. We don't ride the horses that day. And uh, so we, we, get all, we get all sorted for that. Oh, I think the next day or two days into the thing that Dirk Schrade, he's going to compete outside. There's a big outside grass area. He's going to compete outside and some jumping on that, on that mare. She's an eventer. He jumps her outside and I think she's good. And then he's got to do some jumping inside. And so this is an Olympic gold medalist. And he said he goes toward, runs towards that first jump and she just stops and almost catapults him over his head, over her head. And so he said, well, we can't use her for the thing. So we had to find another horse. And the other horse was this gray uh, venting horse. So you guys, Dan and Dan, you, the, the creative geniuses, have come up with this thing that I'm going to do in this in this show when we do the, the the horse swap. So we're going to come in, I'm going to do some raining and whatever, and then we're all going to go out and I'm going to get dressed up in like – at the time on YouTube there was a guy and he made this funny video. Um, it was like to a rap, rap beat and he had like a top hat and tails and rode this dressage horse and it was like something – and he had a grill, like the gold teeth, and it's something like – scoring nines down the center line and i'm supposed to do that so i'm supposed to come in and 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 up on the big screen they're going to play that video clip and i'm going to do some dressage stuff on this horse and then do a little bit of jumping and that was the plan wasn't it yeah yeah you dressage at the start uh, only a little bit of jumping at the end a little bit of jumping at the end and so uh, when I get on this, I don't think I got to ride the horse really the day before. I just got to ride the horse. Well, we didn't want you guys to either because that was always what normally happens is it's, oh, this is the first time they're hopping on the horses and then they've already hopped on the horses for two or three times before 
and they make out to the crowd that it's the first time. So when we say it's the first time, it's the first time. So you actually hadn't gone on that horse until that day. Yeah, well, not long before that. And I get on the horse outside. And so the plan is I've got to do this dressage stuff and do all the lateral movements and some flying lead chasing and stuff and then do the jumping. And That's so right. I get on I get on her outside and Dirk Schrade, the Olympic gold medalist in the eventing, he says to me, do not do any dressage. This horse this horse is pretty rigid. <laughs> like it's kind of <laughs> head stuck in the air and its nose stuck out and its back was pretty flat. And he said, do not do the dressage. This this horse has no lateral movements and very little mouth. Just just do the jumping. And so I've got to go in there for like four or five minutes or something rather because his song goes for a while. <laughs> and I don't think you know this at the time. So Dan's in the arena and you're like the, the MC. You're doing all the, the comparing and stuff. And and I come in and you got you start playing that bloody video clip. Yeah. And I just I do a little bit of attempting to do something dressage looking on her and then I just kind of go, ah, forget that. And I start running around yeah. jumping these jumping these jumps. And I wanted a picture, like I said, <laughs> going over that brush fence. Um I, I didn't get it in the end, but I'm not a jumper. And so there were some smaller jumps and there's different jumps, but I wanted a picture going over that one and I never hit it right. I, I couldn't get the timing right. She either took off too early, she took off too late. We jumped it every time. Actually, you know what? The first time I pointed her at that, because Dirk Schrader had just been in there and done the jumping with her and we went outside and changed and we go back in there. I go back in there. And the first time I point her at that thing, we I'm cantering, 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 come up to it, and it's not very wide, and she just ducks off around the side of it. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm screwing up this perfectly good uh, venting horse in front of like four or five thousand people. And so the ne- I just kind of expected her to take me to the jump. So the next time I came back, I kind of held her more on the line. But later on, I was talking to Dirk, and I said, oh, I think I messed her up. She I, she jumped around that that brush fence the first time, and he goes. Oh, don't worry, she did that to me too. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I didn't screw her up. But anyway, so I keep not being able to hit this um, this brush fence quite right. You know, so I'm going to get left behind her. I get put up a neck a little bit. And uh, at one point in time, like, I've run around and jumped in front of this crowd enough, and Dan's like, okay, Warwick, that's enough. Stop, yep. stop, stop. And I, I just keep oh, going around and around and around. And I kept going around till I got over that brush fence just right. So I knew that someone was going to take a picture. But, yeah, I do have a great picture of me in this top hat and tails going over that brush fence on that grey horse. But poor Dan, he didn't know what the hell I'm doing. He think I've gone rogue and I just won't stop jumping over these damn Yeah, I thought, I thought we are going to get hate mail because you were just flogging this horse around <laughs> these jumps. And I'm watching it going, oh, you've jumped it, Warwick. Yeah, okay, you've jumped it again, Warwick. You've jumped it again, Warwick. Like, how many times have we got to jump this jump? And I was like, just like, go back to, and I was trying to get you back into the dressage. Like, do the dressage, do the dressage. Yeah, well, but you I, didn't know that there was no dressage. No, I didn't. Always, so. yeah. And, you know, something else that was really interesting about that whole thing, and this is, you know, a bit about certain parts of the horse world, is so on thir- uh, Wednesday afternoon we had the meeting yeah. And we're all going to swap horses. And they said to Charlotte, you guys said to Charlotte, well, you're going to ride the reigning horse. And she goes, I'm not going to ride that. I'm not going to ride the reigning horse. And she kept being very, very adamant about not riding the reigning horse. And for a minute there, I was thinking, oh, she just, she poo-poos the reigning. She thinks it's bad. But later on, I got talking. I said, well, or well, maybe it was during that meeting, but I said, why won't you ride the reigning horse? And she said, 
because if I get a photo taken of me in a horse with a bloody great bit like that, they will they will absolutely crucify me in England. And so, you know, she's the at the time she's the top of the food chain. She's won the World Equestrian Games. She's won the uh, Olympic gold medal. She's won the World Championships all in Vallegro. But she doesn't do things like everybody else does. She's not part of the status quo. They, her and Carl has to do a little few things outside the box. And because of that, they all hate her. And she's not – I thought she was worried about riding the running horse because she thinks it's horrible or something or other. But she was really concerned about if there was a picture taken of her riding yeah. horse and a shank bit that she would be judged. And she's, you know, she says, I've got a target on my back. And it's so sad. But that's the truth of the whole thing. And I said, well, you can ride him in a snaffle. And she goes, will they ride in a snaffle? And I said, they're trained to do all the manoeuvres in the snaffle before you ever go to the shank bit. She's like, oh, okay. So she's decided to ride the horse. And I think maybe Friday morning, I think that the show Saturday night. So Friday lunchtime, we organised for me to go and give her a lesson on this horse. And she's really concerned about... Um, not being able to ride it like she rides. Like she goes, I don't know how to ride one-handed. And I said, forget one-handed. Just get on and ride it like it's your horse. You know, just get comfortable because she was really, this is in the warm-up arena, no one's there. She's really, um, she was really concerned about, you know, maybe looking a bit silly or whatever. And I said, well, just get on and ride it like you would. Do some lateral movements, whatever. So I got her doing all that stuff and then I had to change leads on it a bit. And the horse was you know, didn't have a great feel about it. He's kind of heavy in your hands and, you know, some reigning horses are trained where their body's really organised and some of them just kind of have a bit of an outline and this one was one of those. And even though he could do the manoeuvres, I would, he just didn't have a lot of, you know, feel the energy underneath you. And anyway, so she rode him and, oh, that's right. So I said, I want you to, I want you to um, just do what you do. So she wrote him on contact in two hands and I got her really comfortable and after about 45 minutes I said, okay, so now let's try, let's try some spins. And so I had a uh, spin in him and that was, that was pretty cool. And in the, you know, but she didn't do much raining stuff. For the most part, she wrote him around on contact and did dressage stuff. We just did some spins at the end. And so that is uh, Friday and I'm like, okay, she's, she's quite, she's getting confident with it. The horse will work okay. And then Saturday, and this is another part of the horse industry that just blows my mind, Dan. Saturday morning, we get a, I get a call from the owner of the horse, of that horse that she rode, and she says, I'm going to take my horse home today. You guys can't use him. And I'm like, what? And she goes, yeah, I'm going to take him home. I go, why? She goes, and this, this is one of the, the craziest things I've ever heard come out of anybody's mouth I've ever heard. She said, I don't want that dressage lady doing I've, – I've spent a lot of money having this horse trained to be a reigning horse, and I don't want that dressage lady riding him doing all that dressage stuff and messing that up. <laughs> and right then I was just flabbergasted. I could completely – was that thing on Sunday night or Saturday night? Do you remember? Yeah, Sunday, Sunday afternoon. Sunday night. Okay, so this is Saturday morning. Um, and we've got to find another horse. And most of and the raining competition, I think, was Thursday night. So most of yeah. the rainers are going home. So we've got to find another horse for this thing. And but I was just flabbergasted that the best dressage rider in the world rode her horse and was actually working on it, carrying itself better than it already was. And she said, "I don't want that her 
doing that dressage stuff and messing my horse up. And, you know, I was just, I was just flabbergasted that, you know, the, the disciplines tend to think, well, they do it wrong. And the other discipline think they yeah. do it wrong and, you know, <laughs> whatever. But then the funny story was then we had to find another horse, didn't we? And so we, yeah. we find another horse, but then I think Sunday morning. So we've spent all Saturday trying to find another horse in the middle of the horse expo. So it's not like we've just got all day to find a horse. We've got stuff to do. You're doing presentations. I'm doing presentations. And we spend all day trying to find a horse. And we finally find a horse. And he's going to work out pretty cool. <sighs> okay, this is good. Now we just got to get Charlotte to ride him and we'll be all good. And then Sunday morning, her and her, she had a minder guy with her, didn't she? He's yeah. Like a, yep. Minder. And, um, yeah, he was a minder. And, um, kind of to keep the fans back. But anyway, she comes up to us on Sunday morning and says, you know what, I really don't feel well. I've got like a migraine or something or other and I and I don't think I can do this thing tonight. <laughs> it's like, okay, we finally found a new horse, got the horse, now we've lost the dressage rider. But I think it all worked out for the best because – And the dressage horse because the dressage horse we're going to use, once she, they heard that, they took their horse home. Oh, once they heard that she wasn't going to be riding it at the start of the, the thing, they took yep. it home too. Oh, yep. Yeah. And we lost that horse. So then I had to find another, and it was the same deal. I think it was Friday night was a dressage. And so the dressage horses had gone home. And so all of a sudden, you, you might have found a rainer, but now we didn't have a dressage horse. And oh, it was, it was hard work all the way to literally, I think, um, remember Lynn Palm was in that show as well? Yes. And when um, Lynn was supposed to come out, her horse started freaking out. It did have a bit of a freak out at the back gate. Yeah, it wouldn't even come in the arena. With all the noise. And then she was like, I'm out. I'm not doing it. And I'm, and we don't know this, like, because some shows you get what they call inner ears and you have like this earpiece in your ear and the back of house can, um, on a microphone, will communicate to you what's going on behind the scenes or, right. you know, that you know, tell you to, 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 to delay. And so I'm like, you know, we've got the intro music for Lynn and, you know, like, come on out, you know, and just like no horses are coming out, nothing's happening, you, you know, we just don't know what's going on and Lynn never actually came out. So then all of a sudden it, it stuffed up, um, you know, the swap over because then we're, we, we're in an odd number and I think James actually hopped on a horse to, to even things up. Yeah, I, I think he did. And, um, yeah, it all worked out really good because you, you found a, a – well, it was a Frisian, wasn't it, for, for the dressage part? He was still there as part of the Frisian demonstration yeah. or something. Or other. Yeah. And then, and then and we, got Heath, we got Heath, Heath Ryan. Ryan. And so, you know, I got to uh, – so I – Heath got on the – Heath got on the um, – where did he end up riding? I forget he went in riding. But, so he came in with a dressage oh, horse. But he that's right. Jump. He ended up getting on the reigning horse and it was – it was really quite cool because um, a lot of people think that reining horses are just, you know, trained completely different or whatever, and, and some of them are, but this horse that he got on was very, very well trained because I think they did, might do the Western dressage or something on him, but the, the, the lady that owns that, he was a stallion, and uh, he was very well trained. So out the back I had, when we swapped, I had Heath get on the horse and I, and I had him work on the on the spin. And as you know, with the spin, if you try to force the spin, it doesn't work. You just gotta kind of allow it. And and so what I had him do out the back was um, you know, taught him how to ask for the spin. But then I had him go, I said, I said, now go into a counter pirouette 
which there's quite a bit of contact and you're kind of pushing a bit with your outside leg, keeping them going forward. And then I said, what I want you to do is just relax your hands and relax your legs. And that horse went from a can of pirouette into a spin. It was absolutely perfect. I'm thinking this is going to blow them away. And uh, so when we went in there and I had to give Heath the lesson, you know, because that's basically the thing, isn't it? You swap horses and then you go, okay, give me a lesson. What do I do? And Heath says, what do I do? And I said, well, what I wanted to, to, to get across to the crowd was that this horse can do dressage movements, not as well as a dressage horse, but he can do dressage movements. So when he got on and he said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, before, before I tell you what to do, why don't you help me exp- learn some stuff? Because I'm just a dumb cowboy. I don't know anything about, about dressage terms. So what is a, what does a leg yield look like? And so he leg yields the horse. And I'm like, well, what is a? what's a half pass look like? So he half passes the horse. And I said, well, what's that look like at the trot? What's that look like at the canter? So he's doing leg yields and half passes. And I said, and what about a, what's a flying lead change look like? And so he shows me that. And so he's basically doing all this dressage stuff on this horse. And I said, now what about a canter pirouette? And so he goes into a canter pirouette on this reining horse. And then I said, so, well, it looks a bit like a spin. Do you think you can turn that into a spin? And he, you know, he didn't quite let go enough so it didn't go into the perfect spin it was still pretty good and like i think the crowd loved it but outside it was a can of pirouette into a real flat fast spin it was like that if we can get that to happen in there it'd be pretty cool but you know he's he's a bit of a uh, a comedian you know so i think it worked out really well because he he played the crowd up and i thought it went off really well it, it was a good show and we got a really good response for it. The one thing that I was going to touch back on that you talked about that both, you know, Charlotte had a problem initially thinking about getting on a reining horse with a big bit and then, the you know, the reining owner didn't want Charlotte to ride the horse because it was a different discipline. You know how we go to a lot of these expos and, and, and you do a lot more of it than I do, but when you go to these expos, you've got to – um you know, sometimes do those lecture rooms, the, the talks. Yep. And for Dan and I, that's something that, you know, is, we'll get in a cold sweat about because we want to, We want the arena, we want the horses, the horses are the the show, you know. We, we're just the sidekicks. So you take away the horse and, and we don't have anything. So I had to do one of these expos in Queensland and um, and they asked me to do this lecture and I was like, oh, I really don't want to. And they're like, no, we, we need you to do it. And I said, okay. And then they said, well, what do you want the name to be? What do you want the title to be? So I thought hard about what I was going to talk about and I thought, well, I've got to use a title that's going to bring people in because I, I just felt like no one's going to come to a classroom where it just says Dan Steers talking about horsemanship. So I um, called it Talking Dirty with Dan. And and when I went out there to, to go to this lecture, there was all, there was this huge lineup. It looked like they were lining up for food or the bathroom. And, and I said to the people, what are you lining up for? And they said, we're lining up to get into your, your lecture, but there's all the seats are taken. We can't get in there. So I, I squeezed my way past this crowd and I had a full crowd and they were all there because of the title, Talking Dirty with Dan Steers. And what – I said to them before a start they were going to get awfully disappointed, but but the the message of the lecture was that you know often we get caught up on stereotypes and words, and I remember seeing a, a Buck Brennema, um, um demonstration, and and he was really having a go at dressage riders, and he was really having a go at um, 
um, trainers. He kept using the word trainers, these trainers, these trainers, these trainers. And, and he was really going off about it, you know, like they're not horsemen, they're trainers. And I remember that Ian Francis, you know, which is one of the best Australian horsemen that we have in this country, um, you know, used to call himself A1 Training Stables or something like Ian Francis Training. I think A1 yep. might be Grand Amos, but he was Grand Ian. Amos, yeah. yeah, yeah, he was Ian Francis Training Stables. And so I, I said to Ian before this expo, I said to him, mate, did, I said, if I called you a trainer, would you, would you be upset at me? He said, no. I said, just correct me if I'm wrong. Did you used to send an invoice out saying Ian Francis Training Stables? He said, yes. So I said, you would refer to yourself as a trainer. Is that right? He's like, yes. Good. That's it. And I walked away. And when I was talking about in this demo, I basically said that whether it's Charlotte or Carl Hester or anybody, you know, if, if you have this preconceived idea about them and their discipline, that they might hold the key to the Pandora's box that was going to open up Pandora's box for you and all of a sudden everything was just going to fall into place. And just because you heard the wrong terminology, you know, you heard the word trainer or dressage rider or western rider or whatever it might be and then you had a preconceived idea about what it should be and you went, I'm not going to go and see them you're going to miss out on that opportunity. So essentially that was what this whole talk was about, that, you know, we, we get caught up in using the words breaking in and, you know, it should be called starting and all these different words. At the end of the day, that's more about how you or the person associates to the word and how they perceive it necessarily than the actual word itself. So, we, we had a big chat about it and, and I think it went pretty good, to be honest. I'm just going to pat myself on the back. But when you started talking about that situation, that scenario, it really spoke about it from both sides, didn't it? The Western and the English not wanting to cross over and then you get somebody like Heath Ryan who doesn't really care about any of it and all of a sudden he gets on with that horse like a house on fire. Yeah, and you know, and in Charlotte's defence, she wasn't she wasn't poo pooing it, but the but the thing about her discipline would judge her very very poorly. Yes, and it was all about her. Yeah, so it's just yeah, I, but I, I think you're right. I think that the whole, you know, I think that the the biggest thing I've that the biggest thing that's helped me in the reigning was learning how to do dressage stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, um, especially for me, I'd say the shoulder in, learning how to do the shoulder in. You know, a lot of times in the raining, people are wrestling with their horse, trying to do something with it, and usually they're trying to alter its shape. And I have found that the shoulder in is the key to that, because the, the, the thing they're trying to alter with the shape is actually getting them to lift their shoulders up, and I found the shoulder in is the key to that. And I was at a horse expo in um, Canada, uh, main event in Canada. You've been to one of those. You did a cult starting yeah. one of those main events in Canada, haven't you? Yep. Yeah. And so there was a lady there, and one of the things that they'd uh, the horse expo had asked me to do a session on the flying lead change, and I told him no, I don't want to do a session on the flying lead change because usually the people that show up to it are not ready for the flying lead change. Okay. And yep. so everybody shows up to see a flying lead change and you never change leads in the whole thing because you're working on the basics of the flying lead change. I said, if you had a horse that can do a perfectly good flying lead change or maybe has a little something that needs tweaking, 
we could do that, but I don't really want to do the flying lead change. And they said, yes, we want you to do the flying lead change. I'm like, okay, I'll do the bloody flying lead change. And so I'm, I don't really want to do the flying lead change. We get up to the horse expo and I meet one of the other presenters and she's an Olympics uh, bronze medalist in the dressage and her name's Charlotte Brandahl and she's from uh, Southern California. Um, and I meet her. So she's on before I'm going to do the flying lead change demo. I didn't know that, but she's in the same arena as me. So I get over there, you know, 15 minutes before the my demo is going to start and I'm looking in there and Charlotte is in there doing flying lead changes. I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm going to do flying lead changes the session after an Olympics bronze medalist in the dressage is doing flying lead changes. This is going to make me look like an idiot. And while I'm there watching her, they were, they were working on doing the shoulder in, but she was doing walk to trot to walk transitions while holding the shoulder in. And when I rode in um, at Equitana in 2008 when I did that night show thing, that all-star thing, and I rode Brett Parbury's horse, and I just, like I said, it felt so up, you know, like underneath you, like a hovercraft. And I said to Brett, how do you get him to do that? And he said, oh, mate, it's just a lot of sharp upward and downward transition. So I've been upward and downward transitioning, you know. I've been doing that for years. Walk. Trot, walk, trot, walk, stop, back up, walk, you know, that sort of thing. Been doing that forever. And then in the meantime, I've discovered the shoulder in. So I'm doing the, the transitions and I'm doing the shoulder in. And then I'm watching Charlotte and she's doing transitions within the shoulder in. And when she finishes her session, she comes out, she's going to give me the microphone. I said, oh, give me a hug. And she goes, why? I said, oh, you've just opened Pandora's box for me like that. When I get home, I know my horses won't be able to do that. They won't be able to hold the shoulder in and do walk-to-trot transitions and back again within the shoulder in, and that's going to help me a great deal. Um, and so, yeah, I really think, for me, the thing that's helped the rain is the most for me once I got to a certain point was was dressage stuff. And I so I go in the arena and I'm going to do this thing on the, on the flying lead change, and I, I kind of tell everybody, I didn't. I tell the crowd I didn't really want to do the flying lead change thing, because a lot of times horses aren't prepared for it. That's that's um, problem number one. Problem number two is we just had a demo here by an Olympic bronze medalist in the dressage. Problem number two, and problem number three is she's sitting in the front row and she's going to watch my demonstration on how to do a flying lead change, and that's. And so I was like, oh, God, she's going to be thinking I'm an idiot. But I kept, I kept referring to her like, so what do you think of that, Charlotte? And she goes, no, that's, that's, that's how we'd go about it too. So it was pretty cool. But, yeah, I do think learning something outside your discipline, whatever your discipline is, learning something outside it can really, really uh, possibly be the secret to helping your discipline be much better. Well, I'll just say, you know, in short, I'll just say there's good and bad you know, horsemen, horsewomen, however you want to say it, horse people in all disciplines. You can't can't get hung up on, you know, a type of discipline and categorize everybody. There's good horsemanship and bad horsemanship, as far as I can see, in in all types of horse discipline and, and you've got to sort that out for yourself. And, you know, the dressage is is where I've I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I've seen some of the, the world's best horsemanship and they know more more about horses than I believe I ever will. Yeah, I th- yeah, it, yeah. It doesn't matter what, what, um, what discipline you do. So, 
Um, what else was I going to talk about? Oh, yeah. So we've 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 really got to know each other during um, Equidays in New Zealand, and we've had we've had some pretty fun times there, haven't we? Oh yeah, I've, I, it's actually a highlight um, for me to to go over there. Not only because they, they look after us so well, but to catch up with with yourself and uh, and have fun, you know, while we're there for the whatever it might be, the week or sometimes it's been longer because of a couple of times we've had those um, Christchurch shows as well and uh, we've been there for two weeks. So it's it's a, it's an awesome event. Yeah, it's my favourite horse expo anywhere because they really look after you. You know, like so they have a they have a VIP section at the end of the arena and, and during the night show we get to sit in there and they feed us food and bring us beers and, and uh yeah, it's 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 always a fun time. We've met some pretty funny characters there too, haven't we? Yeah, for for us, we've we've almost been like the bookends, and so when they book the show, they 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 change, you know, the the core of the show, the, particularly in the equestrian side of things, um, more so the jumping and the dressage, and then the horsemanship sort of stays the same, and so we've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of different different um, characters haven't we yeah and i you know one of the really cool ones we met a few years ago was a fellow named albert vaughan so he's from the netherlands and he's an olympic silver medalist in the show jumping he actually won the olympic silver medal at the sydney 2000 olympics and tell me if i'm right or wrong here dan but i think you had a bit of a man crash on him a bit i'm proud of it yeah absolutely yeah he was this guy so he's he was I don't know how old uh, – any idea how old Albert is? Uh, I would think maybe 60, 60 plus. He could yeah. be older. Could be I think he, older he than that. But I'll tell you what, he looks good. I, I yeah. stalk him on Facebook nearly every day. He looks sensational. He does look sensational. And he was had this very military bearing, like everything is actually – you know, oh, yeah. military officer bearing, like he walked like a military officer. He's when he sits, he doesn't sit and slouch. He sits. He's perfectly straight up and down. Everything is posture. His posture was just phenomenal. Yes, everything's perfectly clean and like you. You know, if he looks down, there's a little bit of lint on his on his jacket. He'd he'd brush it off, you know. And and he was he was yeah, he was such a cool dude. And what was really cool that I've really enjoyed. We're just talking about learning stuff from other disciplines. One of the they have they have a night show every night and something entertaining on there and one of the nights they always have a Grand Prix uh, show jumping and so I got to sit so when Albert was there I got to sit and watch the Grand Prix show jumping with an Olympic silver medalist and pick his brains about about jumping and lines and you know that's that was an education that you just cannot. You know, you can't go, I want to go and buy two hours with Olympic silver medalist and watch a, a Grand Prix show jumping and have him spill his guts and tell us everything. And another really cool bloke was uh, another jumper, was a fellow from, I think he's from Netherlands too, um, Rob Ahrens. And Rob is the Dutch Olympic show jumping coach. And I think he's coached three Olympics and I think he's competed in three Olympics. And he went back two years in a row there and, we got to sit with him. Well, I got to sit with him and pick his man. You you were there a bit too, but you were the MC, so you probably were working a bit more. But yeah, sit there and actually listen to, you know, probably the the most under, arguably the most successful Olympic show jumping coach in the modern era. 
watch the show jumping and have him, you know, talk about things. And he was amazing. Like there was one, there was one, one of the years there was a jump. You kind of come around a corner, you jump one jump, and then you go a bit further around the corner, then you jump three in a row. What do you call that? A triple, I suppose? Triple, yep. Yeah. And as they would go over the jump coming around the corner, Rob would say something like, he's going to knock the top, the top rail of the third jump. He's not even into the triple yet. He's coming around the corner. He could just tell from the line that the horse is going to be short, long, too fast, too slow. And, he's, yeah, his eye was just uh, absolutely phenomenal with, with that sort of thing. And, and a nice bloke too. Wasn't he cool? Yeah, he, he, he was really cool as well. I got to do um, – I think we were over – when we were at Christchurch that first time I had double image there and um, – we were actually in that VIP section, and, and I've done a little bit of jumping the the that year or the year before. Um, I jumped double image at Equitana with the Wilson sisters coaching me, and I, and um, we got up to a meter five, and it was pre- really? that was pretty yeah it was, it was a big deal. And d- double image hadn't jumped more than a a bloody you know forty four drum laying down on the so side. So that's probably about sixty centimeters, maybe, just for a um, you know, for a time trial and stuff. And so, and he's but he's got good scope, and and so Dan was encouraging. It was in a night show, and I had the jodpers and the jump saddle, and it was my first time having a dig at it. And uh, anyway, we did that, and when we're having these few beers and we're watching the the jumping, but at Christchurch, I said to the Wilson sisters, "I'd like," I said, "I'd love to have a go at that." Like it didn't look too. I think it was only like a metre five or something class, but it was a speed class. And um, anyway, I, I said, I wouldn't mind having it. And they said, go get your horse, go get your horse. We'll get you in, we'll get you in. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, I can't do that. No, no, no. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I said, you get me a saddle, I'll do it. So we get the saddle organised. And by the time I go out there, the, the comp's finishing and they're getting into the second part of the competition, the bigger jumps. And um, I thought I was going to be able to handle it, but because it was a, it was it was above a metre, and it was a course where Ade Quintana only jumped one jump, you know, and they were just slowly putting it up and up and up. That's obviously quite a big deal to do, you know, a metre five course or whatever it was. So they took a few rails down, and and um, and Rob um, was on the he was on the microphone, and he was going to instruct me through it. And of course, I was, you know, hamming it up a little bit, and you know, I was going into lines, and and he would would say something, and I would panic, and you know, double image would come to a sliding stop just before the jump, and then I'd circle around, and then we'd jump, and and we did knock a couple of rails, but we got we got through the course, and uh, afterwards, Rob loved it so much. He's like, we've got to take this show to Europe. He's like, this is the best show. He's like, they would love it. It's the best entertainment. And uh, and I was just like, oh, I appreciate it, but I, I don't know if I could uh, take this show on the road. I was, I was, it was more Dutch courage than anything, but uh, but but I had a lot of fun with him. Yeah, it, it, I I think I actually videoed that. We had the we had the video camera with us, and I think I actually videoed that. But yeah, double image was really really cool. Uh, so another funny moment we've had there um, a couple of years ago. There was a dressage fellow there from was he from Spain? Juan, Juan, Juan. And uh, what they dis- – so, you know, for this night show, there's always a comedy part of it, which Dan always 
has to come up with. And so they've decided that that Dan is going to take a dressage lesson from one and it's going to be, you know, this funny, you know, it's a little bit like Tristan Tucker's Brett Kidding thing, but except except the, uh, you know, Dan's, on a quarter Dan, horse. Yeah, he's on a quarter horse and he's getting a lesson. And this one guy, he, he's got the personality of a, well, the, well not, he's a nice personality, but he's got like the comedic chops of a fence post. <laughs> and uh, you can, this is at the, so there's, you know, Equitan, Equiday is at the North Island. There's also one on the South Island. We do the one yeah, on the let, North Island. Yeah, let me tell this part. Cause yeah, you, you tell this part. So I was emceeing as well and I'm supposed to do these shows and it was only by luck and good fortune that during – so I teed him up to do it. Mind you, we hadn't practiced and we hadn't rehearsed, but his wife um, spoke better English than he did and she was like, yeah, yeah, no, he'll do it, he'll do it. And all I said to him was, look, all you got to do is pick on me. Don't pick on the horse. Horse is good. I'm terrible. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And anyway, during intermission, I've gone back to have a couple of drinks with you guys in the VIP, and I noticed Juan talking to one of the organisers, and I sort of eavesdrop, and um, he's trying to organise a lift back to the hotel. And I'm thinking, mate, you're the you you're doing the first act with me after intermission, so I sort of walk over to he's talking um, to Amy. And she's organising the vehicle and she knows that he's supposed to be doing this act but he doesn't want to do it. So I'm, I get over to Amy and I'm like, don't organise a car for him. He's got to do this act. And she's like, well, he, he's he's feeling tired. He wants to go home. I'm like, he can't. We've got to do this thing and what are we going to do? So I tell him, don't organise the car. I talk to his wife and anyway, he's like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do it. Da, 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 da. And then I go and rope you in. Like I said to you, I said, because I'm going to have to leave to go and get ready to start the show. So I say, Warwick, I'm like, you've got to come out with this guy and do not let him run. Like you make sure he comes there back of house. So we, you do that, you bring him there and, uh, and you, you just chip in or cut, cut me, cut in when, when you, when you feel, but, but the crack up sisters were doing the show and, um, they had their, um, prop their um, uh, house, their homestead, it was it was like a, what do you, what do you want to call it? Like a, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, like a, it's like a movie set to where it's just a wall, but from, you know, from the crowd side, it looks like a house. It's got a door and windows and everything, but behind it, it's just a, a wall that's propped up from the back and there's nothing behind it. There's no house there. And you, you yes. just, yeah. So, so that they're talking about. So, the premise of the gag was that they had this dressage rider staying with them, and they they thought it'd be a good opportunity for Dan Steers to get a lesson, and um, from this guy. So he's got to come out from this house. So I'm on I'm I'm backstage. I'm behind this house with um, with you, and at this point I'm in the western gear. But then when I come at, go back in, I've got to get into the dressage gear. And we're standing there with one, and he doesn't seem to understand much English, does he? No. And we're trying to say to him, look, these girls are going to look after you. When they cue you, you walk through that door and you just walk to them. That's all you got to do, and they'll do the rest. Yeah, and so there's like, little house things over in the corner of the arena, and so, yeah, so the door's yeah, it's all lit up. It's lit yeah. up on the front, and it's dark in the back. 
and they and I'm listening out and I hear them say, you know, we've got one staying with us. Oh, you've got the earpiece in, don't you? But you've got a microphone. You're you're mic'd. Yeah, but but it wasn't supposed to be on. So I push the door. I push the door open, but I don't want the crowd to see me because if they see me, then they, they, I'm supposed to act surprised that they're trying to rope me into this lesson, and it would look too set up. So I open the door, and you're on the on the other side of the door, and one just he stays there. He doesn't move, and they hit him with a follow spot. And he's behind the actual door that's opened and he's just frozen like a deer in headlights. And we, and I'm saying, one, go, go out there, go to the girls. And you're just laughing and chuckling. I'm like, one, go. <laughs> and I'm trying to yell at him like, one, get out there. And eventually I think on the third one he, he walks out and, and then he doesn't shut the door. So I sort of lean out and grab the door and shut the door and I turn and say to you, I say, I use the F word. I'm like, fuck. I'm like, I feel so sorry for Juan. And apparently they, when Juan stepped out, because he had a microphone, they turned his microphone on and they turned my <laughs> microphone on. <laughs> and the whole crowd heard me swear. <laughs> Luckily I, I didn't I didn't say anything bad about Juan. I just said I feel sorry for him because I'm like, he does has no idea about what he's just been roped into, does he? And I think when I go out there and I do that act, he might have said like two words the whole time. We just had to improvise. And then when that show finished, we had to go down to the South Island and I was just like, we're not using one. And that's where you had to come up with your own alter ego, didn't you? Yeah, who was I? Um... Helmut. Helmut von Schnitzenberger, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. 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 And you so, loved yeah, the, it. Some good gags. It was. We stopped. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out quite well in the South Island. So yeah, I came out and I was the, I was the, um, the German dressage instructor. Yeah, and you got into it. Yeah, and we it worked out pretty good. Like we we, I think during the week I had some time to think about some gags, and they they all worked out good. And and I heard a little story that um, Dan Steers actually did that at Equitana the next year and stole all my gags. Well, not all of them. What I did do is I changed it for a start. I actually had a dressage instructor. I had Brett Parbury. And, uh, and I only stole one gag. Only, to be honest, I stole one gag, and the gag was the um, full pass, which which you had a water bottle. Or you had a cup. I think I used a water bottle, and you threw me the cup, and you said, uh, that is a full pass. And then the next time you threw it, and it, and it didn't go the whole distance and you said that is a half pass and I did like that joke. Did you make that up? I made that up during the week walking around in Queenstown, I think. That was good. I thought I didn't didn't you didn't you also do the forward, more forward, more forward one where you lean up the horse's neck? Yeah, I did do that. Was that yours as well? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe we stole a couple of yours. Yeah, maybe maybe you stole <laughs> the whole thing. But that's all right. You can you can use it. There's no copyright on that. Um, yeah, that was a that was a pretty fun one. Um, that what whole... about some of these nights? I, I want you to get into some of these stories where you, you know you get passed out drunk. Oh, so so yeah, I don't really drink anymore. But Dan and I used to have some <laughs> really really uh, good times afterwards. You know, we'd have a few beers in the VIP section, then we'd go back to the hotel and we would. Uh, get some alcoholic beverages and sit around and tell stories till 
way, 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 way later in the in the evening than we probably should. Soon we've got to go to work the next morning. But I think that's that's part of that whole that whole thing. There is is having very little sleep and and uh, getting up and going and doing it again. We've had some- you know what, one of the, yeah we've had some good nights and we, we won't tell them because we'll um, people might uh, think we've got a drinking problem. But um, but you know what one of the other funny stories from that one was when um, Craig Johnson did that phone call. Oh yeah, that was elite. Talk about funny. That was funny. Did, were you there when he did it, or did no, you I got a video to see of the video. it? Yeah, and well, we talked about it. You guys talked about it afterwards um, when we had, you know, how they have the after party, and you guys were talking about it in the after party. And I'm like, I've got to, I've got to see this. And someone filmed it. Um, his partner filmed it, and it was that was so good. Honestly, that yes. that was. Yeah, I did a was, demo in in an arena, and Craig Johnson was on right after me. And so Craig Johnson is uh, a trainer from America. He's won the reigning futurity, I don't know, seven or eight times or something or other. He won the very first one that when the prize money got really big back in the 80s, they had the first $100,000 to first place back in the 80s, and he won the first one of those. Um, he has He's won like 20-something world championships. Uh, really good guy, really good horseman, and he was on right after me. And... I was about, you know, I got done with my demo and he comes in and he says, hey, can you can you not leave? Can you just stay here? Don't you have to tell the story because it was the first time, wasn't he late? And you filled in for him? Oh, Isn't that's this right. Yeah. So the day before he was a little bit late and he was on after me. And so he wasn't there at the start time. So I walked in the arena and I put on American accent and I said, hey, I'm Craig Johnson and blah, blah, blah. And I pretend to be Craig Johnson. So the next day he was on right after me and as I went to leave, he said, can you stay here a minute in the arena with me? And so the crowd's all there and and uh, he starts saying, so I just, did everybody watch Warwick right there? And he starts talking me up like, doesn't he do a good job and blah, blah, blah. And while he's talking, he reaches in his pocket, goes, oh, hang on. And he pulls his phone out like, hang on, it's my mum. So he goes, hi, mom. He's like, how are you going? Yeah, good. No, I'm kind of busy. I'm you know, and his mother's older, so I mean, you're probably thinking you wouldn't answer the phone when you're in the middle of a demo at a horse expo, but his mother's older and, you know, it could be an emergency or something or other, so I'm thinking he's answered the phone. He's like, hi, mom, how you going? Yeah, no, I'm kind of busy right now. I'm here in the arena. I'm in New Zealand. Yeah, I'm here with Warwick. Warwick. No, no, that's his, that's his name. Warwick. Yeah, I know, I know it's a... I know it's a it's a dumb sound of name, isn't it? Yep. And he's going on and on and on and on about this he bloody spell thing. it, didn't he? He spells it. Yeah, he spells it out. Yeah, and then he's like, it. yeah, he's like, no, that no, it's silent. The, the W silent. No, not the first one, Mum. The second one, because you know everyone wants to call you Warwick. Yeah. And he's doing it. No, the second one's silent. Not the first one. That's what I loved. Yeah. And it, what else does he go with? Is he any good? Oh, yeah, he's, he's all right. I mean, he hasn't won near as much as me, but he's all right. Yeah, no, the first one was, what does he do? Oh, he just does stuff on the ground, I think, was the oh, first yeah, he does. one. No, I think Dan Steers. She's that. like, she must say something like, um, well, does he write? You know, because we don't hear what she's saying, but he says, oh, he does really good stuff on the ground or something. And then she must, he must think that she replies, does he write? Oh, yeah, no, he writes quite good too. Yeah, no, he does, he writes quite well too. 
oh no, mum, he hasn't won as much as me. That <laughs> was the other one. He hasn't won as much as me. I was just like, this guy is a genius. It was so good. Him and his his girlfriend Kresny, they spent quite a bit of time planning that thing. And uh, yeah, that was that's what that was the only disappointing part was. <laughs> How much ever apparently he sat up like rehearsing it to all hours of the morning, but it was it was good. You can share that video because I think he tagged you in that video. You need to put that up on your Facebook. Yeah, I need to put again. that on on social media. That was that was pretty that, funny. You know, you know the other thing that happened too. Remember, um, Tyler bet us. You you put that blonde wig on that I used because I was being the um, I used I was being um, Billy Ray Cyrus in that. Um, uh, Old Town Road. Oh, right. You did uh, like a, a, a – Yeah, and when yeah. we finished that show, we went back and had some drinks in our room and I still had that wig there and you put it on and you did the horse screamer. And, yeah, that's and, right. I'm and personally Tyler, the horse screamer. Yeah, and you and you did that down to a T. Like I couldn't believe how accurate that was. So we videoed it and then Tyler made a silly bet that you know, within 24 hours or something, we weren't going to get 10,000 views, I think. No, I said, I said, oh, this is awesome. This is great. I'm going to post this. This will get 10,000 views before the weekend's over. And Tyler's like, it will not. I'm like, yeah, it will. What did I bet him, like 500 bucks or something stupid? It was, it was a fair bet, yeah. <laughs> and I think it had like 10,000 views the next morning. Yeah, we were like, yeah, like, between you and I sharing it, there's no way. Well, it was a good video too, so you can share that one again if you want. If you want to see, relive that, see you. You tend to have the comedic genius all the time, but for me, I've it's got to be two o'clock in the morning, and I've had to have had a fair few rums for that to come out. Uh, I think you're being modest. It's hidden down there deeply. So you know what? We've been chatting here for a while. I better get to some questions. So as you listeners would know, if you've heard other the other podcasts. I um, have a list of questions I send my guests and they get to choose some of those questions that I'd like to, um, that I get to ask them. And usually I, I intersperse the questions during the conversation, but I've, Dean and I talk so much that I've totally forgotten. So I'm going to hit you up to finish this whole thing up here, Dean. I'm going to hit you up with some questions here. And the first one is what accomplishment are you most proud of? Um, I guess for me, the, the whole Double Dan thing, like um, starting Double Dan Horsemanship and doing it with essentially a best friend um, and being able to achieve the stuff that we've achieved is is probably what I'm most proud of as far as accomplishments, if if that's uh, not too corny. No, that's a, that's a great answer. Like, yeah, if you think, you know, I was talking to um, Trist, Tristan Tucker the other day and I'm like, you know, like, couple of young blokes from Australia, we're a world away from where we, we grew up. I mean, you're still in Australia, but just like we, where you guys have been and like, uh, you know, from the beginning to the, to the end, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, so next question, what did you want to be as a child? This is the funny one. So when you're sending me them, I'm like, I've got to put this one in there because I actually got, I wasn't. I just want to say this diplomatically, but I wasn't the best student at school, which is, I know, hard to believe. And um, I was about, I was only about oh, 10 or 11 and the um, deputy principal had me in his office and he said, you know, do you, do you know what you want to be when you grow up? And I was just like adamant because my older brother loved cars. I was going to be a mechanic. So I'm going to be a mechanic. I'm going to leave 
school at 15, you know, as soon as I'm allowed to, I'm going to get a mechanic apprenticeship. I'm going to be a mechanic because at that point I've never, I didn't know about horses. Anyway, the uh, deputy principal tried to, you know, do the right thing and he was just like, well, look, you know, you're only young and things might change and, you know, maybe you might have another career in mind that you're going to need some sort of you know, education for and uh, formal education at least. And, uh, and you know, you're here anyway, so you should you should probably probably try to make sure you don't limit yourself and and study while you're at school and pay attention and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like so ignorant and arrogant. Just I was just like, nope, I'm going to be uh, a mechanic. And the funny, the reason why that's funny is obviously I didn't become a mechanic. And secondly, for anyone who knows me, I'm the least mechanical person that I know. So just the even thought of me becoming a mechanic is just ludicrous. But yet here I was at 10 years old, flat out telling a deputy principal that I was going to be a mechanic. Uh, you know, I didn't have this earlier on, but I have been um, known to tell people that when I grow up, I want to be Dan Steers. So. Uh, I was actually just about to ask you what what was it when you wanted, when you were growing up? Oh, I wanted to be a bull rider. Oh yeah, so you because you were already into because your family were into horses, weren't they? Yep. Yeah, so I didn't have that. Yeah, so speak and and, and the reason I. The reason I didn't become a bull rider is because I, you know, I rode calves and junior steers and junior bulls and they got on two real bulls and it scared the crap out of me, which brings me to the next question. What is your relationship like with fear? Do you run towards it or do you find that you play things kind of close to your chest? Um, I'll put that in there because when we, when I get to pick some of these questions, the fear thing is an interesting one because I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm, I don't spend much time consumed about fear. Like I don't get um, really worried about too many things. But I, I, I was at a point um, early on, it wasn't that early on, but early on I got, I really lost my confidence and my nerve like breaking in horses. I was, I was working with somebody and I was just getting thrown off so many times and I was never a bronc rider and, and I got to the point where I was just like flat out refused getting on them, you know. And uh, and now it's probably something that I pride myself on now, being a, a, a you know cult starter, a horse starter. I've mean, been in heaps of competitions, and I do demonstrate. You've seen me do demonstrations where, you know, there's horses that I probably, sh- you know, we shouldn't, we need more time with, but I still get on them and do that whole deal in front of you know thousands of people. And the, the thing that changed that for me was under, like understanding the horse a bit more and and knowing how they work and being able to get confidence from what I know. And that, and that was a big game changer for me because all of a sudden that gave me the confidence not only with colt starting but just, just generally with horses that I, I reckon I noticed a huge shift in in my horsemanship program and a lot of it to again not not trying to sound corny or anything but was based on on Dan James like he had a way um with with young horses and he was just so confident with them that very rarely anything ever went wrong and yet for me everything was going wrong all the time and and I had to look at that and go what's what's the difference and 
And so that was something that I worked on. So I probably perceive fear a lot differently because I know back then I was gen- I was genuinely scared, like I had fear. And since then, I've never I've never had a problem with it since. So hopefully that makes sense for some of the listeners. And 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 I also use it in my clinics for when people do have confidence issues. Like you know, it's it's something for me to remember back to that that um, you know a lot of people just see us thinking that you know we strap bloody fireworks to our back that we must be fearless. Um, but I think it's uh, about understanding more about the control than the fear. Yeah, there's, I've seen a Buck Brenneman quote floating around the Facebook about fear and he says something about, um, you know, knowledge overcomes fear and knowing, knowing that your preparation's good and knowing what to do if what happens uh, really overcomes that. And he said, it's been a long time since I've been afraid because I, I can read horses and I also, my preparation's good. And I think that's, that's what you're talking about there is. is as long as you, you don't want- go to. Warwick and um, Jane Pike. Um, <laughs> mindful, mindful presentation yeah. so, before so you get on a horse. You, as long as you don't go to that, you'll be fine. Okay, so only now we're going to name names. We're going to name names here. So, if you guys have listened to a previous podcast, I was talking about um, Jane Pike's big blue tree thing, to where you you know you can't not think about a big blue tree. If I say don't think about a big blue tree, you picture a big blue tree, and, and I talk about. Jane talks about you don't want to think about what you don't want to happen. You want to think about what you do want to happen. So you want to think positively. And I had talked about a, um, a, I said, very good friend of mine who's an amazing horseman and starts a lot of horses at horse expos. Jane and I were doing this talk at a horse expo in New Zealand and this friend of mine came and watched our demo and then he went and did a colt starting. And that night he said, oh, you guys messed me up. And I said, why, what happened? And he said, well, I've never thought about things going wrong. And, and after you guys were talking about that, I was getting on that horse and I'm thinking, well, what if he does this and what if he does that? And uh, that was the one and only Dan Steers in that, in that story. So, yeah, sorry about messing you up. But I, I, I talk about that a lot, Dan. I say, I, 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 I tell people that you said, I really had no idea that it was possible to think that way. And, that's, and at clinics I talk about that. I name you and I say the story and I say, how would your life be different if you couldn't couldn't imagine failure? You know, if you if you couldn't if you didn't think about what might go wrong, and everybody's eyes kind of roll back in their head and they're like, "Holy cow!" I'm always thinking about failure. So, yeah, that's a great question. Next question, Dan. What have you changed in the past five years that has helped shape who you have become? I think the. The, the way that I, I guess looked at looked at that question was for me um, something that I preach a lot now is seeing things from the horse's perspective a lot more. Like, well, well purely seeing it from the horse's perspective. I, I think that even though that I, you know when Dan and I were, were really young and ambitious, and the liberty thing is a funny the funny thing because to really get a horse to to work at liberty you need to create that willingness. And within that willingness, you, you do have to see things from the horse's perspective. But also I think it, in a way it can be almost to the detriment that you can learn how to get inside a horse's head and you learn how to make things happen as well. So for a short amount of time, and I, and I hope it was only a short amount of time in reflection, that as 
Dan and I got, um, and I shouldn't throw him under the bus, but but I'm just saying, you know, I'll just use myself as an example, that as we're going through it and we're learning more and more how to get horses to, to, to do some of this stuff um, at Liberty that I used it, you know, in my horsemanship program and it was, it was more about, you know, getting the horses to do things more in spite of us than for us, if that makes sense. I don't want to yep. give you a long answer. But but it's a it was about pressure and not about release and and uh, and then afterwards when I could see the difference, Liberty now has taught me more about horsemanship than than anything else. In the last five years, it's about really creating like you know when you talked about double image running to that beanbag for example, like he will run to that beanbag from anywhere. Like I haven't found anywhere that he won't run to it. Like as far as distance, open fields. You know, I, I just haven't found where he won't run to it from. And you know how quiet and, and how, you know, well-trained he is. If he he will, like when he's going to run back to that beanbag, you can be leading that horse away. And if you get that cue wrong and he thinks it's time to go, he will dislocate your arm. <laughs> he will run over the top of you to get back to that beanbag. And I'm like... What he, I've taught him to do it, but I don't understand why he does it. Like he has so many other options. I've tested this where he has so many other options. And if I take him off that beanbag and I do it again, he just gets faster and I don't control the speed. I'm not chasing him. No one's chasing him. There's no pressure on him. And when I finally figured it out um, that it was that he he's running there for the release, it's like, you know, I say to people in the clinics, I'm like, you know, when you're a horse and I'm like, they end up figuring out that you're the you're the cloud of pressure that you're riding this horse and you've always got enough pre- little bit of pressure on him and it's like this gray cloud is following the horse around and he's like Jesus just don't feel comfortable you know it's just it's just a bad day and then when you go and and let's say you've got this paddock and he's got all his mates in this paddock and in this field or this pasture whatever country you're in and it might even be a bit downhill and it's big and it's open and all the other horses are in this paddock and they're right in the furthest corner and you go and after you've ridden your horse, you go and let him go. I'm like, what does he do? They're like, well, he runs flat out down to his mates. I said, he runs there flat out and I said, generally when he gets there, he shakes and he's like, and I'm like, that's the horse figuring out that he's got rid of us. He's got rid of that dark grey cloud. When he gets down there, there isn't a dark grey cloud anymore. It's just sunshine and lollipops. And that's the equivalent of double image running to that beanbag. For him, it's it's his beanbag. He's running there. He owns it. His release of pressure. It's his willingness that drives it. So for me, the Liberty horses have taught me how do we how do we transfer that to everything? How do we create this horse that it should be harder to get him? Like you know, we talked about raining at the start. Yep. This is an example. Like you know, in the raining spin, right? For example, the raining spin. Tell me if I'm wrong. But it's harder, once you've taught the reining spin and you've got a show horse, it's harder to stop him from spinning than it is to get him to spin. Is that correct? Yeah. It, well, you, you tend to teach you tend to teach them that the spin is the, is the happy place, and so they're always searching for that happy place, yeah. Yeah, so when you've got to shut them down, and because you get a penalty, right, if you overspin or underspin even, you're going to get a penalty. So you have to practice more. Like this is what I couldn't get my head around. I'm like, why is it so hard to stop a horse from spinning? Oh, it's not hard to stop my horse from spinning. <laughs> as soon as I stop riding, he stops spinning right. because it wasn't doing it right, you know. 
when it's his spin, like I, I show him a demo and um, I get one of my horses, and it doesn't matter who I'm riding. Like they're not nat- they're not raining horses. I don't train raining horses. I train cow horses, and I'll just get them on a circle and I'll start trotting them around. But I'll just bump a little bit, you know. I just I have a crappy little, you know. I'm not, I don't ride with rhythm basically. I just sit and, and like a sack of potatoes and I bump around with my bum. My legs bump a little bit and my hands bump a little bit. And all that horse wants to do is get into that spin, but I won't let him. And then the moment that I go quiet, that horse will start spinning. Mm-hmm. And I use that as a demonstration to say that's that's the that's how you can incentivize like the horse going, well, that spin is so good. Look at this spin. If I get into this spin, I can make my my rider become a good rider or my human become a good rider. Like they own it. It becomes theirs. So for me, it's all like I'm trying to get my horses to – they're already teaching humans as it is, but I just want them to teach humans with the correct response. And that, that's my big deal at the moment. So for me, I know it's a long answer to a short question, but in the last five years, it's probably trying to get to get that, to just get those horses more willing and, and, and that side of things as, as – has really changed my program and and I, I think I'm seeing the benefits of it now. Good answer. So one last question here, and this one could be an interesting one. So th- these questions came from a book called Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss. And he interviewed, you know, all sorts of interesting people and uh, got all these answers. And, and this one, this question is, what advice would you give people who are about to enter your occupation? And then in parentheses, it says, this one may be difficult as many of us have occupations that are far from, from normal. And, and like for you, first we'd have to, to discuss what is your occupation because you've got a number of different occupations. You train horses. So someone sends your horse, you train it, you send it home. You do uh, clinics, so you travel around and you're teaching people how to train their horses but then you have the entertainment part so if you think about it's not really one occupation it's three let's start out with the entertainment what advice would you give people about to enter the horse entertainment occupation well i thought when i picked this i can answer all three of them straight away i'll let you do it your way then (laughs) thanks mate it's it's more that because we do this, we've got to do a lot of talks and you do the same, you know, you, you travel and a, I, I sort of probably pick myself as a clinician is probably what I would give myself as a job title. <clears throat> and um, and I get asked, you know, I do, do stuff for schools and, you know, younger kids and younger audiences and also I have a lot of working students that, that come through here as well. And essentially my job is to try to talk people out of it. And, and when I talk about this, I'm saying a job, in the equestrian, you know, industry, not not just what you, because that's what you said. You know, you're a clinician, you're an entertainer, you're a horse trainer. But I, I'm just talking about this as a job in the equestrian field because you you know, and you're probably in the same boat as Dan and, and I. We had everybody try to talk us out of this as a job, you know, because yeah, you, know, you won't make money, and you work really hard, and you do this, and you do that. And it's and I had this from people that I respected, but it was almost like you just say to them, like I respect, you know, what you're saying, but I'm still going to do it anyway. And I think if you have that mentality, it will work. So when I do talks at school, I'm like, I'm going to try to talk you out of it. I'm going to tell you, become anything else, 
make money and then enjoy your horses on the side. I'm not trying to talk people out of being with horses. Right. I'm just trying to say that if if you're not passionate and you don't have the drop, like everybody that I know that's successful with horses all work extremely hard to get to where they've got. And I and what I'm finding, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but you know, with this next generation of people sort of coming up into the industry, they lack that drive and that passion. And they always think like we get people coming to our clinics and they just think that and, and I've heard you talk about this like you're an overnight success. It only took you well, you know, whatever it is. They say an overnight success is seven years, but you might say it's longer. Twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> It's, but they think that you've got the answers, and if they just shortcut the system by coming directly to you, then they're going to get that answer. Like if I just go to a dentist's clinic or a Warwick Shelley clinic or whoever's clinic, that you're going to make my horse great, you're going to make me great. You know, you do it so easily that it must be a secret that no other horse trainer knows. There's nobody in the world has figured it out except for us, and we can share it with them, and they're going to have this amazing experience when they actually see the dedication that goes on behind the scenes very few and i don't know if i'm generalizing live up to that expectation of being able to have that same passion or drive that that um that we have and so if i can talk you out of it i'm not saying like i said before that you've got to get out of horses but it might not be a job or a career because it's it's long days, you know. It's it's there's no there's no time off. Like, you know, I've I've missed families' weddings and you know significant birthdays and Christmases and all of that stuff because we've been doing something with horses and uh, and and it's to me that's that's how I perceive it. I don't know. Am I wrong? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I was talking to uh, Jonathan Field, so friend of both of ours, very, very amazing horseman. That's, and that's another one that I have another crush on. Uh, yeah, man crush. Yeah, we all do. Um, and he was saying he was listening to uh, Howard Stern interview Ed Sheeran, and Ed Sheeran was talking about how he slept on couches for years, you know, and he was struggling musician, whatever. And could have been years. I think he was famous by the time he was 19, but anyway. Uh, it was a few years. But anyway, uh, Howard Stern said to him, so what was your plan B? And Ed Sheeran said, I didn't have a plan B. And he said, I can tell you, I can list right off my off the bat right now, I can tell you 10 others who are as famous as me and they didn't have a plan B. And the only reason they're famous is because they didn't have a plan B because when it gets, if you've got a plan B, like if this doesn't work, I'm going to fall back on that. What happens is when it gets hard, yeah. instead of going forward, you get, oh, well, it's this is not for me, and you go back to your plan B. And he said, so, you know, he said like when the when the Vikings went to invade wherever they invaded, when they got there, they burnt their ships when they got there. Yeah. We're, we're not going to run back. This is either going to work or it's not sort of thing. And I know that's not the best uh, maybe, you know, career advice for people. I think it was perfect. No, I was like, I think you just sum that up perfect. Like whether it's you or Ed Sheeran, but that that is that is a hundred percent right. Dan and I talk about that now. That you know, it's really hard to start a new venture. You know, we we get these ideas, but it's hard to get them up and rolling because we we're already doing what we want to do. But when when we started, we always thought that, and we talk about it in our podcast that if we just do, when we just do this next show, when we just do this next whatever. 
it was going to be the turning point for our careers. And that was, everything was going to be easier once we did that. Whatever that was, it was everything, we just wanted everything to become easier. And inevitably you'd do that one show or whatever it was and nothing changed. You know, you got a tiny step closer is probably all that happened, but not a significant change. But we didn't run back with our tail between our legs. We just went, oh, okay, we've got to do the next big show. What is that big show? And that was all because we did not have a plan B. If we had a plan B, we would have walked away. Yeah, so I think I think having a plan B in life in different careers is good, but when you take a career that is not, you know, it's not mapped out, it's it's it's, it's not quantifiable. You've got to really believe in what you're doing, and and I, you know, I think that's what you and Dan have been really good at. So we've got to finish this thing up here because I've been talking for an hour and fifty four minutes, and I have a Zoom call I got to get on here a minute ago, which I thought I'd have plenty of time between talking to you and. Oh. What's your Zoom call? What's his other call that I'm not involved in? I just went away to a uh, last weekend. I went to a or two weekends ago. I went to a men's. It was called a men's emotional resilience training. Like the guy that teaches it, he he's a former combat soldier. Has lots of uh, first responders, cops, things like that in there. Um, the horse trainer. Yeah, and me. <laughs> and uh, so we've got homework to do from that thing, and we've and then this is going to be our. So it must be two weeks since we were there. This is our first bi-weekly Zoom call to, to check in with everybody and see how they're all going. Okay. Did you do your homework? Yeah, I did my homework, actually. Good at my homework. Oh, well, this feels like I've taken over. Well, thanks, Warwick, for being on my podcast. Uh, really <laughs> You're welcome, Dan. Really appreciate your time. I've, I've got to get off your podcast so I can get on my Zoom call. But, Dan, thanks so much for uh, – joining me on here it's always a pleasure to chat with you and i uh, really can't wait to to the next time we get to uh, catch up so uh thank you so much for being on and uh absolutely thanks for having me and and then um we're going to get you on our podcast soon enough and i'll uh, i'll have to now think of like all new content to, to put on there since we nearly covered everything right so uh yeah if you guys are listening and you want to to uh learn the whole life story of of Dan, if you go on the the Double Dan podcast, it's available on all the platforms and uh, amazingly entertaining and astonishing life that these guys have lived. So uh, thanks, Dan, and thank you guys for joining us here on the Journey On podcast. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.